This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day. This is Ken Forster with episode 94 of our Digital Leadership Podcast Series. Today, I'm pleased to have Neil Furukawa, CEO of Akua, one of our Momenta Ventures portfolio companies. Neil's an accomplished operating executive with over 25 years of cybersecurity expertise, solving hard problems in government, defense, and commercial markets. Neil's expertise is in the creation of early-stage technology startups through rapid growth. Prior to founding Akua, Neil spent five years as a chief operating officer at CyberPoint International, from startup to over 150 employees and 60 million plus in revenue. Prior to CyberPoint, Neil spent six years as executive vice president and CTO of Savvy Networks that was an early innovator in IoT and supply chain software as a service platform, and eight years as a general manager director at Lockheed Martin Cybersecurity Innovation Group. Neil is a Bachelor of Science Electrical Engineering degree from the University of Hawaii and completed the Executive Management Program at the University of Maryland, Robert H. Smith School of Business. Today, I've asked Neil to really focus on three things. One, of course, is his own digital industry uh, journey um, and uh, and some very rich companies in that. Two, is a practitioner really around communications, infosec, and, and of course, supply chain. And three, a leader, a startup uh, or serial entrepreneur entrepreneur, if you will, and CEO of, uh, of Akua. So, Neil, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Ken. I'm happy to be here and happy to be uh, working with Momenta. All right. And we are happy to have you as part of our portfolio. I know we worked long and hard to uh, to get this into the portfolio, and I'm really happy that, uh, that we've done so. So, your digital industry journey is really quite rich going from engineers, uh, being an engineer, I should say, and we love engineers at Momenta, uh, to a cybersecurity practitioner, to uh, supply chain startup CEO. So what were the key inspirations, say decisions and opportunities that really led you down that path? So uh, my first real job uh, while I was still going to University of Hawaii, uh, getting my uh, bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, was actually at a very early stage startup in Honolulu uh, called Verifone. Uh, Verifone is a pretty well-known uh, company today. They build these credit card uh, point-of-sale terminals, uh, devices in stores. Um, when I was there, uh, it was pretty early stage. I was uh, There still wasn't even 10 employees at the company. And I was, remember, we all had a really great time. It was almost like a big family. Uh, all focused together on delivering a product that would make a huge difference in the world. Um, I enjoyed that feeling of directly contributing hands-on, basically doing everything from designing circuit boards to writing code to emptying trash cans. Um, And it was that company that actually brought me to California uh, when they ended up expanding. being in California a few years, I always had this great idea of returning back to Hawaii um, and continuing uh, doing my electrical engineering work. Uh, so I decided to join a, a telecommunications company called GTE, which was the parent company of Hawaiian Telephone Company at that time. 
Um, and it was at GTE I started getting involved in the early days of what they called information security and intelligence. Um, the word, the term cybersecurity was not even used back then. Um, from there, I got recruited uh, by Lockheed Martin in early 2000 uh, to start up their Information Assurance Directorate, uh, which was really the early start of cybersecurity. Um, and then I left Savi in 2006 as part of an emergency and acquisitions activity. And I joined uh, Savi, uh, working directly for Vic Verma as the chief technology officer. Um, and one of my jobs at Savi, uh, because I really enjoyed touching hardware, I mean, I'm a hardware geek at heart, uh, was to transition Savi from an RFID hardware company uh, to a full managed service. Uh, company, which is where Lockheed wanted them to be. And that's where I really realized that supply chain and logistics was very starved uh, for real-time data uh, because we started you know, trying to sell into that market. Um, that challenge uh, 15 years ago was that technology was not quite ready for mass deployment, um, not ready for Internet of Things. Um, so I left Savi in 2010 uh, and joined a new cybersecurity startup called CyberPoint as their chief operating officer and as was mentioned earlier we built that company um, to about 150 plus employees in five years um, and that's when i really and just realized that i really enjoyed um, building companies uh, from the ground up um, and that's why that's what kind of led me to where i am today uh, deciding to start a new company called akua very good. You know, the um, a, a pattern we see among uh, the digital industry practitioners, many of which are founders of, of our portfolio companies, is this kind of move up the technology stack, usually starting off, you know, maybe I'm in semiconductor, you know, I'm doing hardware, I'm doing software, I'm doing platforms. And, and, and I, I love the way that you just bridge that over to, and then I start building companies. And in some sense, this is all, um, if you will, kind of uh, a systems approach, you know, which is kind of how I've always viewed myself, right? I can do hardware, I can do software, but even when I think about investing in companies, it's it's about a system of systems, right? And and so it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, that common trend, certainly see it in, in you. I love the fact that you were involved in, you know, what you call information security very early um, and, and before it was, you know, certainly, as you say, branded uh, cybersecurity. You and I share a, a common DNA in that we both spent time at uh, at Lockheed there in the in the Bay Area. Uh, tell me a bit about you know what really inspired you to you know to to move to Lockheed, but more importantly to focus on information security and I guess some of the the inspirations that came out of that time. So during my time at GTE, um, I started to really start seeing that the internet and computer data security would emerge as a huge issue. Um, more and more people were starting to use the internet and getting on computers to, to share data. Uh, information assurance at that time was focused on creating a defensive posture, uh, while the flip side of that was trying to turn that defensive technology into an, what we would call an offensive weapon, right, which is called hacking uh, today. Um, I found that all extremely challenging. Um, because nobody had the answers to that. And it really could open up a whole new market uh, for businesses and, and, and research. Uh, the US government at the time was starting to heavily invest in companies to build new cyber tools. So it was fun to get involved in all of that and to try to build a company at the same time. And that was what really um, 
you know, I remembered all that. And uh, that's why I ended up, uh, you know, deciding to join CyberPoint uh, back in the early 2000, I mean, the, uh, the uh, 2010 timeframe. The um, move from Lockheed and the focus on information security to, you know, Savvy, um, and, and I'll call it generally physical device security. And you may want to describe a little bit about uh, the work Savvy was doing at the time, um, but it is an interesting one. What, you know, what what inspired that move? So Savvy was a very early leader in uh, what we call active RFID. Um, and they were originally targeting the Department of Defense, um, especially during the uh, Gulf War. Uh, you know, there was a lot of equipment being sent international and things were getting lost and you know, they didn't know when it was going to arrive. Um, so Savvy was very hardware focused. Um, and I remember, you know, being back at Verifone, thinking back at Verifone, I've always missed that kind of machine-to-machine -machine, um, type of uh, development. Uh, and what, so when I saw Savvy uh, as part of an M&A activity, I jumped at that chance and said, hey, you know what? I see this explosive growth at the time in cellular data technology. Um, so, you know, leveraging uh, the Department of Defense and our connections there um, led me to uh, try to join Savvy um, to try to develop a physical security device uh, around physical security, meaning try to protect your shipments during transit, uh, that also tried to leverage the new emerging uh, cellular data technologies that were coming out. At, at that time, it was 3G, it was brand new, and then it migrated to 4G, and now we're heading towards 5G. Uh, Savvy is an interesting one, as as you said, they were an active uh, early leader in active RFID, and of course, I was heavily involved in the uh, MIT's Auto ID um, initiative way back when, and so Savvy was always the kind of the poster child for active R RFID. For those for the listening audience, passive RFID would be send a radio wave to a device and it'll power up using that energy and, and send you back an information. Active is think about a powered device that is constantly sending you information about a device, and so it was. Uh, it was an interesting early test case to have. So in transparency, our talent practice has placed uh, the new CEO of Savvy, this is post uh, the uh, um, uh, exit from uh, Lockheed. Uh, we placed that CEO back in 2017. So we again got very close to the business um, as part of that executive search placement. Um, tell me, what were some of your key learnings there as as CTO in, in this very early phase for them? So uh, when I joined Savvy um, and working with uh, Vic Verma, we had a really a great vision at that time. Um, you know, we wanted to provide ubiquitous uh, coverage of uh, shipment asset tracking data. Um, but what, what we, I quickly realized um, when we started trying to develop products was that technology was not quite ready at, at such a ubiquitous uh, level, meaning global. Um, and at that time, uh, trying to use active RFID, as you mentioned, uh, it required uh, an, a reader infrastructure, meaning that you need a reader to be able to communicate with these active RFID devices. So we ended up uh, you know, getting well-funded to do that, um, but it proved extremely costly to try to deploy a global commercial uh, active RFID infrastructure. And not only deploying it, but trying to maintain it uh, became a huge cost. Um, so once 
So once we learn what that was, one of the lessons learned is you really need to take a look at the life cycle of what you're trying to do. Um, and if it becomes, if you know, if the financials don't work out, then you really need to try to take better advantage of what is existing in the marketplace today. And in our case, you know, was at that time was a global seller, right? So the telecommunication companies were maintaining and investing in that those networks. So we ended up trying to pivot off of active RFID into more of a cellular base uh, network. And uh, uh, the lessons learned there, especially on the passive RFID side, were even uh, more heavyweight in that regard because that reading infrastructure was needed simply to power up the devices. So a lot of the great use cases, many may remember the Gillette razor blades going through Walmart use cases that uh, all the industry was talking about, but you required a very heavy reading infrastructure in there. So you're absolutely right that moving to <clears throat> cellular and now probably more uh, low power wide area networks uh, is helping to revive some of those same use cases from uh, from way back when, but to do it, in some sense, you can say uh, Moore's law and perhaps even Metcalf's law has now caught up to uh, the, the promise of what uh, passive and active RFID we're going to, to do. What I love is all of this has converged now at, at, at Akua, you know, the, 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 your software experience, your hardware experience, and, uh, and certainly your business building experience. So tell us a little bit about Akua and the, the problem that you're trying to solve and, uh, and why. So back around, uh, I think it was around 2015, uh, I was still at CyberPoint. Um, IoT was starting to gain a lot of traction. Uh, so I started to look at uh, how cybersecurity could be applied to the IoT problems. And then again, also which markets uh, may see an early adoption of our IoT. I mean, it was a fun buzzword and you know, it was fun playing around with these little devices and sensors, but really where was the market adoption is going to be? Um, you know, the smart home market was starting to take off, uh, but I remembered again, my experiences at Savvy and believed that supply chain and logistics um, being that it was very start for data, uh, could become an early adopter uh, for IoT. Um, you know, it was a very clean use case as long as you could get the financials uh, to work out. Um, I initially tried to approach some of the more traditional uh, track and trace companies um, to sell them on this idea that cybersecurity would become a huge problem and you need to provide some level of protection in an integrated cloud platform type of architecture. Uh, but you know, there was very little interest, uh, frankly, especially in the commercial space, because you know, people weren't thinking about security, right? They were just thinking about the data. Um, so going back again, uh, back through my Lockheed experience and my experiences in history with the government as a customer, I uh, had a few contacts in the Department of Homeland Security that I knew from the past. So I gave them a call um, and, and had a meeting and I presented them my idea of this, this type of gateway architecture um, to provide uh, security of the data, the IoT data. Um, and they said, Neil, we really see this as being applicable uh, in our minds for cross-border security, meaning for shipments being imported and exported out of the US. Um, so I started seeing a shift. Uh, there's a, you know, there's some uh, activity in the government uh, really pushing supply chain security, um, chain of custody, um, if, you, if you read the news. Uh, so then I decided, you know what? 
now is a time, right? I think now is the right time uh, in where technology is ready, the market is ready, uh, there's enough concern around security um, to truly focus on a secure IoT data platform integration platform uh, with an edge architecture approach. And that's what we ended up using as the vision and, and basis of uh, forming Akua. So uh, ended up uh, spinning Akua out from CyberPoint uh, with about a handful of individuals um, that wanted to join me. And, um, you know, we ended up building a prototype, getting some venture financing, and here we are today. You may want to talk a little bit about the the Akua solution because it is a it is a full stack solution, as you say, from edge all the way up to cloud. And I think it's pretty unique in the way you guys have uh, have architected. I, I remember some of the early pitch meetings we had where you would bring the you know this this edge lock device, and uh, and so maybe you say a little bit more about that for the uh, for the audience. Yeah. So. Um... Part of our architecture is this edge architecture, and the whole premise is that the, the the cloud platform, the analytics platform, truly wants to be device agnostic, right? Because and that that's really was one of the early reasons I believe why the track and trace players who used to be device focused and did the stovepipe architecture where they're trying to sell the devices to you and you have to use their your platform to communicate with the devices uh, was not ubiquitously uh, uh, adopted is because it would lock companies into a certain technology. Uh, with the Akua um, products, the actual platform itself is device agnostic. However, uh, when you look at these IoT sensors that's coming out in the marketplace, um, you want the, the sensors themselves to be very commodity, low cost, easy to use. Um, so a lot of the processing power is wants to be placed into kind of a gateway architecture. So what we've decided was for supply chain logistics and shipping, the best way to do that is to build an electronic seal uh, that is an ISO 17712 equivalent, meaning that uh, customs organizations are on the road who mandate the use of a high security bolt seal on containerized shipments would recognize the electronic version of it because they would have to use it anyway. And by the way, it's also an IoT gateway. So it could go and recognize any sort of new protocols in a software radio approach uh, that's in the shipments themselves and collect that data, encrypt that data, and send that security back to our cloud platform. So that's kind of the premise of our high-level architecture that we adopted in Akua. Yeah, and I, I really love the gateway concept in there, um, especially because we've continued to do a lot of work in, um, uh, I'll say, disposable tag, track, and trace, a company called NanoThings, as you as you well know, yes. where they effectively do one-way tracking of, of pallets, as an example. And the beauty of something like that is the the gateway you've got actually can read what's what you know the 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 information those devices are sending themselves, and then relay it back as part of the uh, intermodal. Um, uh, container. And so it's a pretty unique architecture. Um, you refer to uh, Kua as a secure DAAS or data as a service platform. Um, how do you differentiate this from just track and trace? I mean, is this a great new marketing name or does it represent something really unique? Yeah, it it, it does represent something unique. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we view traditional track and trace product vendors 
uh, as primarily focused on selling their telematics devices. And their and the analytics platform is typically tied in a proprietary protocol manner to their hardware. Um, when we design a code track as an IoT data analytics platform, uh, we truly de decided to make it device agnostic. Um, the data itself uh, can be used by multiple players. So when we collect all this data, it's a, a kind of a big data a repository, um, that same data uh, could be used by the beneficial cargo owners, for example, to determine you know, when somebody purchases something, uh, when it's gonna arrive and what condition it's in, if we have sensors to detect that. That same data could be used by the transport carriers uh, to basically do much more uh, accurate ETA, for example, than what they're getting today with uh, EDI um, and you know, port data. Um, and then that same data could be used by insurance companies, for example, for loss claims, right? If there is a issue that's happening in shipment today, they're basically just paying it out based on um, product value. Uh, but if you have additional data, one could do some uh, analytics to see where the potential damage could have occurred. So they could do, uh, uh, they could assign the loss to certain um, companies that was handling it. Uh, the shipment, for example, um, you at ports and terminals might want to see that same data uh, to look at delays um, and compare, you know, uh, efficiencies uh, between transit delays between their ports and other ports for competitive reasons. Um, and even the U.S. government um, would want to see that data. Uh, for example, for imports coming in, if there was some funky things happening with that shipment, like the container was open in an area where it's not supposed to have been open, the US uh, Customs and Border Protection might want to do additional inspections on that container uh, via the, the, the risk data rather than you know random inspections like they do today. So the whole key around Akua and Akua track is that we have this data and we can send, you know, people can pull that data and we can sell that data many times over for different, whole different reasons. Um, it, it all comes down to the analytics that we can do on that data. Um, so that's why I really view it, what we're doing is not a traditional track and trace, but it's a, a whole new business model around leveraging IoT to the supply chain and logistics market. Very good. I have, um, uh, knowing that uh, one of your key clients is the U.S. government, um, as you know, we've taken this view that the current uh, COVID pandemic, which I think we're probably in you know, week uh, 11 or 12, depending on, on who's counting, um, but has been an accelerator for a lot of our portfolio companies and their digital technologies, mainly because it allows for effectively remote touch of these things. What impact will this current COVID crisis have on supply chain in general and probably Akua, you know, in particular? So one of the things that uh, we've seen uh, that the COVID-19 crisis has exposed is really the severe weakness in, uh, in global supply chain. Um, for example, uh, you know, we've talked to some government uh, customers and um, who's handling shipments of personal protection equipment, you know, like N95 masks and things like that. And, you know, what they're telling us is that a lot of these shipments are getting redirected uh, by the carriers um, because they're changing, you know, booking schedules. Uh, a lot of it is getting, frankly, misplaced. Um, and then the arrival times is also unknown. So really what 
we're hearing you know, at, at a high level is that once the shipment leaves manufacturers, it enters what they call a black hole, right? Um, you know, people are kind of guessing at what's going on with the shipment, but it's hard to do real-time planning around that. So what we're actually seeing is, uh, you know, both the uh, DOD and the DHS uh, in particular uh, have recently come out um, and did a big call for ideas and products around digital logistics. Uh, so if you go to the SBIR uh, website, um, there's multiple SBRs open today um, on specifically just that. So we have, you know, we've been keeping very busy. Uh, over the last uh, 30 days, uh, writing white papers and putting together uh, quotes and um, to all these SBRs. Uh, so what we're hoping is that, uh, you know, we will turn those into book contracts here shortly. Uh, so, you know, I can say that, you know, I hate to take advantage of a crisis, but it's been keeping us uh, very busy here uh, over the last uh, month, two months. And and you're you're not alone in that. As you may remember, we had uh, some early roundtable discussions with the CEOs of all of our portfolio companies at the beginning of this, comparing best practices um, and uh, and and really just benchmarking one another. And one of the uh, early observations that came out is that business was actually ticking up, um, both because uh, the um, in many cases people were being considered or companies were being considered to be critical infrastructure. I.e., I can't go out and send Send a person out to maintain this compressor in the field anymore. I need a way to remotely access it. Um, you know, second, the purchasing agents in many cases were at home and thus available. <laughs> and third, what we were seeing is that a lot of corporate funding was being moved dramatically from um, normal, if you will, operating uh, costs to uh, IT, mainly to support, of course, the newly uh, remote workers. And and as a result of that, we were seeing OT pickup as well. So uh, in some sense. Your, you know, what you're seeing is what all, most of our portfolio companies are seeing, and um, and thus, in some sense, there is a new normal coming out of this, and it will, you know, re, let's say tech technology adoption is driven by behavior change, and unfortunately, pandemics in a negative way create, you know, uh, rapid and uh, holistic. Um, you know, behavior change. So, not uh, not surprising. Let me ask you to kind of switch tacks here and really think about your you know uh, your own uh, entrepreneurial experience. Of course, you know we have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs that listen to these podcasts. You know, what would your advice be to to them in terms of you know what's made you successful? So, you know, I've I've. Uh, I've talked to a lot of our early entrepreneurs, and sometimes I hear comments like, "Yeah, you know, you know, it's better to do this because you know maybe we can make a lot of money." Um, and you know, one of the first things I always mention to them is, you know, really, if to do entrepreneurs embarking on a startup uh, purely for financial reason is, is not the right reason. Um, you really need to have this genuine passion uh, to, you know, to do something that is. You know, it will be beneficial, and you have this, you know, all in, all chips in, a mentality, right? A tenacity about it that it kind of drives your everyday actions. You know, I sleep, I dream about it all the time, and really, uh, really, most important from experiences, it becomes your whole life. Um, being an entrepreneur um, is is really like a lifestyle, right? So you really need to have the buy-in, and it's only fair, right, to your families, uh, to your employees who's putting their trust in you 
um, that you know you can you're doing something great here. You know you have the ability um, to do what our vision. And uh, secondly, you, we owe it to ourselves, right? Uh, because we're really getting into this. Um, we're not second guessing ourselves. Uh, we have this belief that drives us forward. Um, and secondly, you know what's really important uh, in doing a startup. You know, for an entrepreneur, is you really have to have a clear vision, a really clear vision that's always pointing you in the right direction. You can pivot around it, but the vision has to be clear. It has to be clear to everybody that's involved, your investors, uh, your employees, especially, uh, because you want to push towards that vision in every action that you're doing in the company. Um, so that's kind of my, uh, you know, my advice that I always give uh, folks is that, you know, it becomes an all-encompassing activity going forward. A, a recent uh, podcast guest said it, uh, you have to have a higher calling <laughs> and, and, and there's certainly your passion and, uh, and really love for cybersecurity and, and supply chain and how all this converges is, is, uh, is certainly been a, been a higher calling. And again, one of the, I think, you know, key reasons, um, beyond your, of course, deep uh, DNA as a practitioner that we invested in you guys early was you were always passionate, um, at, uh, you know, from the earliest conversations and, uh, and, uh, it, it felt like it truly was a lifestyle for you. So in, in closing out the conversations, we always ask, like to ask two questions, obviously, uh, you know, one, what startups do you see as the ones to watch? And, you know, and secondly, you know, really what inspires you? So what startups are you seeing out there? Obviously, Momenta Ventures, you know, likes to invest in such startups, but, you know, what are you seeing as the ones to watch? So it's, it's interesting. So there's, there's two areas that I think is going to be critical um, to the success of you know, IoT and supply chain. Uh, one is um, you know, the continuing technology investment and, and uh, product development around you know, what we had mentioned earlier in low-cost disposable sensors. Uh, because that's really what you know the market is trying to achieve. Uh, so you had mentioned earlier, you know, you've got an investment in a company called NanoThings. Uh, they're doing a really great job. Uh, they're focusing on the perishables and environmental sensors area. Um, so that's one company, and and uh, no, it, I forgot what some of the other companies are, but we are trying to find similar companies um, that does similar kind of sensors around, for example, shock detection, uh, maybe uh, chemical sniffing. Um, and things like that. So any companies around that is very interesting. Uh, the other area is the, on the network side. Um, and I think cellular networks um, is uh, have their limitations too sometimes. Um, and what's really exciting for me, especially you know being back from my uh, my lucky days, is that uh, this new next generation satellite constellation uh, communication technologies is coming out. Um, I think Fleet Space is one um, that I think uh, Moment has invested in. Uh, there's Swarm uh, that I that recently come, has come out in the news. Um, I think these satellite, you know, nanosats, microsats, that's focusing specifically on low-rate data, ubiquitous data coverage around the world, um, rather than broadband, is uh, what's going to make this whole market uh, really interesting in the future. 
And we couldn't agree with you more. And if the listening audience is wondering, no, I didn't pay Neil to, to recommend <laughs> two of our portfolio companies, but it does end up, we've actually created a bit of an ecosystem play um, uh, specifically between NanoThings, FleetSpace, and, and Akua. And we like to do that um, because I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, the combination of those technologies and the, the solutions and, and market traction that Akua has um, could create some real killer applications in that regard. So, uh, look, final question. What really, what inspires you? You know, um, famous speakers, good books, resources, et cetera, that you'd like to share with our listening audience? So, in terms of books, um, there's a uh, there's a book set that I read uh, a number of years ago that um, kind of forms my guiding principles uh, in decision making and leadership. Uh, it's a book set called um, Primal Leadership and Resonant Leadership. Uh, what that book does is it really studies and focuses on emotional intelligence of great leaders, and I really feel that you know getting some of the um, specific tools around leadership is fine. Uh, but really separates great leaders uh, from just, you know, uh, a regular leader is truly the emotional intelligence side of it. Um, to me, it's all about the people and you know, trying to focus on the psychological side and self-awareness and compassion. Um, it really is what, you know, forms great companies, right? If you look at some of the great leaders out there, Steve Jobs, you know, you're, um, and things like that. You you really see a, a difference um, in the way that their you know, their leadership styles are. The, the second book is a bit different, um, and this one always sticks in my mind. I actually met the individual, so he was a speaker also that I attended, and it's a book called The Other Wes Moore. Um, Wes Moore uh, is a gentleman that grew up in the Baltimore area, and he uh, in a very uh, in a very uh, low income area. And he shares the exact same name and a, I think the same age as another Westmore. They grew up in the exact same area. But the difference is, is as they grew up, uh, one became a successful banking executive, um, a decorated army veteran, and a, a successful entrepreneur. While the other Westmore uh, spent his early life in crime and ended up uh, getting incarcerated for life in prison for murder, right? And what they studied was that they grew up in the same neighborhood, they had the same type of friends, uh, but what really made the difference is what you believe in yourself. And that's what the driving, and I always remember that, is that as long as you believe in yourself and what you're doing, you can always be successful, right? The minute you start second guessing, um, having doubts is when things all fall apart. Uh, so really what my, the you know, message to everyone, you know, that um, is trying to do, you know, do startups and stuff is, you know, truly in the end, you really have to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I believe in myself and I can do good in the world and uh, I want to be a successful leader and entrepreneur. And that's pretty much what I do. Excellent. Well, Neil, it has been a great pleasure to have you on this podcast. This is long overdue. We've uh, talked about it for some time, so I'm glad we were able to both find the time to to do it. This has been Neil Furukawa, CEO of Akua, and if you don't mind me saying, a clearly a perpetual self-believer uh, and, and, and very passionate around the space. So, uh, Neil, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ken. I really enjoyed this uh, 30 minutes.
Right. Take care. And we will look forward to uh, having the audience join us again next week on, uh, I believe it's going to be number 95 of our Digital Leadership Podcast Series. So coming up to that great 100. Thank you all and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening. 